Lord's Day, and as people are gathered in their homes and yet scattered around the city and around the country, uh, streaming us right now, we want to be called to worship this morning with a word from Psalm 46. Let's hear the word of the Lord, and then we'll, we'll sing together. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Church, wherever you are, let's sing together.
Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Let's sing it out. He shall reign in glory crowned with grace and might. Bless His name and praise our sovereign King. He shall reign forever with His chosen bride. And all the earth shall sing that Jesus is the King. People and realms. And realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song and infant voices shall proclaim their earthly blessing on him. shall reign in glory crowned with grace and might bless his name and praise our sovereign king he shall reign forever with his chosen bride and all the earth shall sing that Jesus is the King. Let every creature, let every creature rise and bring his grateful honors to our King. Angels,
Father, we gather here this morning with the hope that our Lord Jesus Christ will reign. But it's not just a deferred hope. It's a realized hope. Indeed, because of His finished work on the cross where He declared, it is finished, having satisfied your divine wrath, your justice on sin. And then being buried, having accomplished his atoning work, was raised from the grave and ascended to your right hand, where he now reigns. And Lord, one of the great evidences that he reigns is that throughout the world today, there are people gathered to celebrate that reign. And yet we await a rain, a rain that will consummate what he has already begun, a rain that will one day express itself in new creation, where there's no more tears, no more mourning, no more viruses and sadness and death, no more rebellion. Lord, we thank you that we have that hope because we've experienced the living hope here and now in your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. And we declare that the Lord reigns and that splendor and majesty are before you today. Strength and beauty are in your sanctuary. And Lord, we gather here this morning to ascribe to the Lord, to you, Lord, glory and strength, the glory due your name. We are gathered here in your Son, Jesus, and by the Spirit of Christ to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. May your name be magnified today in the face of your Son, the, eternal, the eternally generated, begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, uh, we can come to God through Christ our high priest because of the accomplished work of Christ. This next hymn is one we all know. So wherever you are, let's sing together, Jesus paid it all. watch and pray find in me thine all in all Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow 
Lord, now indeed, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I am. In church, that's our hope. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Now the hope before us, and when before the throne, I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed in white as sin had left. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed in white as snow. He washed. He washed in white as snow. He washed. He washed in white as snow. Church, sing it out. Oh, praise the one. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the praise of one. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there 
do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Church, let's declare this together. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with the love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. It's a good word for us to hear this morning. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You are wisdom unimagined. Who could understand your ways? Reigning high above the heavens. Reaching down in endless grace. You're the lifter of the lowly, compassionate and kind. You surround and you uphold me, and your promises are my delight. Still to prosper, you have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Yet even with the enemy means for evil, you turn. 
turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. And even in the valley, you are faithful, working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. Turn it for our good and for your glory. And even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Your plans. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. You're faithful forever. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign He is faithful. If you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Making our way through the book of Samuel. Let's ask the Lord by his spirit to illuminate us to the glories found in this text this morning. Before we begin our message. Father God, thank you that indeed as we've just sung, you are faithful. And sometimes theology is all we have. But our theology is true because it comes from the scriptures, the word of God, which is true. The inerrant, infallible word of God. Lord, we pray today we could hear from the scriptures. We pray that your spirit would grant me illumination, that you would edit my plans and purposes in the pulpit to fit your plan and purpose. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. May this word encourage us, rebuke us where it's necessary, teach us and train us in righteousness. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Tomorrow, March the 23rd, is the third anniversary of the day that my family traveled to Louisiana and brought Sephon into our family. He was eight years old at the time. That very first night, he asked me, can I call you dad? 
And I said, yes, I am your dad. And Stephen, from the very beginning, delighted being in our home. But about a month into our time with Stephen, our oldest daughter, Ella, caught him stealing a snot. And Stephen responded by running away. And when I say he ran away, he ran away. He ran away to another county. And he went to a stranger's house, knocked on their door. They came to the door and he said, I need a new family. Well, thankfully, they, they called the police and the police found where we lived and brought him home. Of course, we were relieved. But I bent down and I looked Sifan in the eyes and I said, Sifan, you love living in this family and being a part of this family. Why would you run away? And his answer was a punch in the gut. He said, because I thought that when you found out that I had stolen a snot, that you were going to give me away. That was a blow. And I said, Sifan, do you know what your problem is? I said, you still think you're an orphan. And you're a son. And until you realize you're a son, you will continue to think and act and feel like an orphan. And then I had this epiphany. That's my problem too. Although I have received adoption as a son of God in my elder brother Jesus Christ, an heir of God, a joint heir with our Lord Jesus, when I'm given over to discouragement or despair or in times like this, fear and anxiety, I'm thinking like an orphan, which was my former state, but also my default setting as a result. And that's why texts like 2 Samuel 9 are so beautiful for us. And critical. For in it, we don't just read about history, Israel's history, some thousands of years ago. We are reading covenant history. We are learning about the nature of our Lord, of his king, and the adequacies and the sufficiencies and commitments of his kingdom, all of which are necessary to meditate upon in our times of uncertainty. Now in chapter 7, that very critical chapter, 2 Samuel 7, God came to David and made glorious promises to him. What we know is the Davidic covenant. We know it was a, co a covenant because Psalm 89, for instance, tells us it was a covenant. And he promises David an everlasting kingdom. He would have a kingdom forevermore. It would be a kingdom of rest and shalom. And this Kingdom would be for the nations, 2 Samuel 7, 19. This is the law of mankind, the Torah for Adam, mankind. And then in chapter 8, we saw last week the fruit of the promises as the Lord gives victory to David over the enemies of God. As this rule, as this reign is extended, a reign of peace and shalom. 
but also a reign that defeats the enemies of God. And today we see another aspect of this kingdom, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of hope and provision, a kingdom for the undeserving, for the hopeless. Interestingly, this chapter begins with God's mediator of the kingdom, David, musing upon a covenant promise he had made some 20 years earlier. It was a promise that prompted him to act in a very decisive and glorious manner. That brings us to 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so some 20 years earlier, when David was on the run from Saul, his life was constantly in danger, and yet he was destined for the throne. Jonathan his, had said to David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That word steadfast love is the word hesed. It's the word we see here. In verse 1, kindness. Do not cut off your kindness from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Of course, David or Jonathan knew the drill. Jonathan knew that it was the custom in the ancient Near East that when a king was enthroned, to his new reign and rule, that all the families of the previous dynasty would be put to death to kind of put down any possibility of an insurrection. And Jonathan makes this covenant with David, please don't cut off my family. Because he knew David was going to be king. David had been anointed king by Samuel from God. Then later, after David had spared Saul's life in the cave, Saul had said in 1 Samuel 24, I know that you shall surely be king. Swear to me that you will not cut off my offspring. And David swore to him. And now David is musing upon the promises. When the king makes a promise, he fulfills his promise. And I love the question here in verse 1. Is there still anyone? Note, he does not ask, is there anyone qualified? Is there anyone worthy? He literally asks, is there someone left in Saul's household that I might deal with him in a hesed way, a kind way? Uh, this word hesed is very important in the Old Testament. It, it's a word that's often translated steadfast love. Hesed is faithfulness to covenant obligations that's expressed in the acts of generosity and kindness and sacrificial love. That's the word here for kindness in verse 1. Now, in a world where God makes covenant with Adam at the very beginning of creation. 
no one can avoid covenants. For instance, Christians are beneficiaries of the new covenant, which is ratified by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the benefits of this new covenant include union with Christ. We are united to Christ by grace through faith in Jesus. And in Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We have a righteousness imputed to us, credited to us, that is not our own, a perfect righteousness that covers our unrighteousness. That's the righteousness of Christ. We are justified, in other words. In this justification, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We have the assurance of God's love. We have the peace of conscience, joy of the Holy Spirit, increase in grace, perseverance to the end. It's glorious benefits to being under and in the new covenant. Believers make a covenant when they join a church, publicly pledging their loyalty and honor to Jesus and to support the church's worship and the church's work. The most common covenant today is the covenant of marriage, a covenant between a man and a woman, a public pledge to be faithful to each other. And these covenants bind us to a public and a private fidelity in our actions and our attitudes. Now in 2 Samuel 9, David's covenant relationship with Jonathan is seen by this language that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. You know, it's common in Scripture, very common that a promise comes to us for the sake of someone who is greater than the one who is receiving the promise. Just a couple of days ago, I was musing on Psalm 79. And in Psalm 79, 9, for instance, it says, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Not because we're worthy but for his namesake. Well, Jonathan, with this covenant with David, receives the fulfillment of this promise, as we're going to see. Notice in verse 2, it says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him, the hesed of God to him? Second time we see that word, hesed, H-E-S-E-D, that would be spelled in English. David was not content to wait until someone from Saul's house called out to him. That would have never happened. Not in a million years. And this is such a helpful and hopeful picture for us. God's king does not wait. He pursues. He comes to seek and to save. But note, this kindness is God's kindness. I find that interesting. He says that I may show the kindness of God. One of the evidences that we've experienced... The kindness of God is that we display 
the kindness of God to others. In other words, to use a metaphor, we are faucets rather than sinks. We don't just receive and receive, we dispense. It is God's kindness that comes to us, and as an overflow, that kindness goes public, horizontal. Now, we might use this, the excuse, I don't know anyone who's in need. But notice the example of David here. He seeks out the ones who need this kindness. And in these times, that's especially important for us, isn't it? Well, notice in the second part of verse 3. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, Ziba seems to portray a view of religion that most people hold, that we naturally think about, or the way we think. Only the worthy can come to the king. We have someone in Saul's house, but he's crippled in his feet. Now, diagnosis question. Would you perceive that a moral person who's faithful in his home, upstanding citizen in the community, who does good things in times of crisis, but has never trusted in Jesus, would you perceive that this person is more worthy of God's grace than a drug dealer or a serial adulterer? If you instinctively say yes, that's the spirit of Ziba. Note again what Ziba says. Yes, I know somebody, but he's crippled. In other words, King David, I know someone, but he does not fit the glory of your kingdom. He would not be useful for you as a warrior. He has nothing to offer you. And I love David's response. Notice in verse 4. The king said to him, Where is he? Where is he? That's the way of grace. It's one-sided. It doesn't wait for another person's performance. It gives oneself to someone who does not deserve it and can never earn it and can never be able to repay. Where is he? Second part of verse 4. And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amil at Lo-Debar. Now the place where the crippled man is living is interesting and telling. Lo debar. Lo in Hebrew means no. Debar means pasture or pasture land. He's living in a place of no pasture, no pasture land. So this is a nobody living in a nowhere place, a place of desolation, a place of barrenness, a place of exile. Likely because of the aforementioned custom of ancient Near Eastern kings putting to death all family members of previous regimes. In other words, it's likely Mephibosheth was in hiding 
He was hidden away. And, and David doesn't ask why this man was crippled. It doesn't matter because grace is unconditional. And so David doesn't ask the question, but we know why he was crippled. A few weeks ago, we looked at 2 Samuel 4, and we learned in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And this marked his entire life. You never read about Mephibosheth in Scripture without this being mentioned. It defined him. But in addition to being disabled, his exile to Lodabar meant that he had lost his inheritance. He had lost the inheritance of his father and his grandfather, King Saul. And so Mephibosheth is lame, He's lost his inheritance, and he can do nothing about it. That's a bad place to be. Notice with me in verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. This is an exodus. This is a glorious exodus. You have these kind of micro-exoduses that you read about in the Old Testament that prepares us for a greater exodus to come. This is one who's been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. He's brought from Lodabar, which is the place of no pasture, barrenness, exile. And he's brought in, delivered into Jerusalem, the city of peace. And notice in verse 6, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you hesed. There's the word again. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. It's the second time we read this in this passage. But with these words, Mephibosheth's world was changed forever. It meant not only sonship for him, but that David's blessing for Mephibosheth was bound not by Mephibosheth's worth or his performance. It was bound by David's covenant oath to Jonathan. In other words, Mephibosheth's security now, his assurance is not bound up in his ability to perform in the king's house. It's bound up in the king's promise, his covenant promise. And grounded by this oath, we see David's promise to Mephibosheth of protection. 
He says, don't be afraid, for I will show you hesed. I will show you kindness. You know, there are in the scripture remarkable promises follow after these commands to not be afraid. So many times you read, for instance, do not be afraid, I will be with you. Here we see a promise, don't be afraid, I will show you hesed comforting words. And the reason for that, the reason for these promises after this command to not be afraid is that they come to those who have legitimate earthly reasons to be afraid. And that's why we're given these commands to not be afraid. We live in a fallen world. There are reasons to be afraid. But the promises, and this is so important for us, the promises are always greater reasons not to fear. The promises are always greater. Greater reasons not to fear. Now let me say something about fear here, given our times, given this global pandemic. Fear is actually one of God's good gifts. Paul Tripp points out that there's three types of spiritually healthy fear. First and foremost, the fear of God. Now, what is the fear of God? It's not some kind of fretful anxiety that every time you, you, you sin, he's going to hit you over the head. It's a reverential awe, but the fear of God is every proper response to God's self-revelation, God's self-disclosure. It's an awe, it's a reverence, but it's to cherish him. It's to prize him. It's to praise him. It's to savor him. It's to love Him, to exalt in Him. It's to trust Him. It's to obey Him. Every proper response to the self-revelation of God is what we would say is the fear of God. A second kind of healthy fear is rapid response fear. This is our instinctive ability to react on the spot to danger. And so if you see a poisonous snake, it's a healthy fear to respond rapidly to that poisonous snake. A third kind of good and healthy fear is appropriate concern. This allows us to respect and be sobered by what we are facing. And with our God-given ability to make prudent decisions we respond accordingly in a manner that will protect ourselves and those around us and in this regard we we can we can have appropriate concern and that's why we are worshiping today via facebook live rather than gathered together as the as the saints but we should not give way to fear which comes by meditating on the trouble. And so, when crises come, and we, be, we begin to see that this unhealthy fear, anxiety is taking hold, we fight fear with fear. Fear the true and living God. Trusting Him. Trusting Him. Obeying Him. Recognizing that 
this God is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his sovereignty, yes, but his goodness and his wisdom. And so here, this God through David says, do not fear. Though Mephibosheth had earthly reasons to fear. David promises him protection, but he also promises him provision. Notice in here, he says, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. Now this provision that he promises Mephibosheth exceeds the promises he made to Jonathan. Back in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, Jonathan had asked David, don't cut off my house, don't kill off my family. David is giving his family much more than this. This is much more than pardon. He grants Mephibosheth a status otherwise known only by David's sons, David's daughters. And even though the language of adoption is not used here, says it, was, it wasn't a formal practice in old covenant Israel, the reality it describes here is what we know as adoption. Mephibosheth is being brought into the house. Indeed, in line with this, David promises protection, he promises provision, but he also promises position. He says, you will always eat at my table. This is the first of four times in this chapter that we read that Mephibosheth will now eat at David's table. In other words, Mephibosheth will be treated as family. Mephibosheth will be treated like a son. Mephibosheth is a restored prince because of David's hesed. And this has set in with Mephibosheth. It's clear that he gets it. You see, when you receive this kind of mercy, this kind of grace, it humbles you. Notice in verse 8. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Verse 9, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Isn't that beautiful? Second time we see that. Now, Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. Ziba was likely the steward of Saul's estate. From here on out, he's required to pay the benefits of this estate to Mephibosheth. Now, I do think in, in light of the times that we're facing right now, not just as a country, but as the world, it's important to qualify this with another truth. You see, under the Old Covenant, there was an emphasis on the material and the physical blessings of God. Now, we have those promises too, 
but they await the consummation. Under the new covenant, the kingdom of God, the emphasis is the spiritual priority of the kingdom. Now, that's not to say there was not a spiritual priority under the old covenant. But the physical material blessings were kind of foreshadowed, not the spiritual blessings, but also the future material blessings that we would experience in the new heavens and the new earth. But under the new covenant, again, there is a spiritual priority to the kingdom. And so, the Lord may sometimes withhold worldly blessings such as material possessions and good health for our spiritual good. Sometimes He blesses us with material blessings and health. Other times, He withholds them in His wisdom for our spiritual good. But an adopted child of God, one who has the rights and the privileges of the firstborn son, can always claim the promise, God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now note with me in verse 11 as we close out this uh, chapter. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, the third time we see that. Like one of the king's sons. Isn't that beautiful? He has the status of his biological sons, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And notice how the text ends. Now he was lame in both his feet. The text closes with the fourth time telling us he always ate at the king's table, even though he was lame in both feet. And so imagine... Every evening at the table sat Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. In time, Solomon would be at that table. And every night there was David himself. But then comes Mephibosheth taking his place at the table with all the rights and all the privileges of sonship. That in spite of the fact that there are two things about Mephibosheth in chapter 9 that don't bode well for him, that make it at the natural level highly unlikely, impossible from the natural perspective that he would ever sit at the king's table. First thing is his hereditary. He was the son of a previous enemy regime. Mephibosheth had been born into a royal line that was at odds with the present king. Long before Mephibosheth was ever born, his family rebelled against God through the disobedience of Saul. And aren't we, aren't we all spiritual Mephibosheths? There's no exception to this. 
We're all spiritual Mephibosheths. We were all born into a royal line. Children of a king who once ruled. His name was Adam. He was the first king. The image of God language that we read about Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. That's kingly language in the ancient Near East. He was the first king. He was given the rights to take dominion, to rule. He was made Lord over all of creation. And long before we were born, our family rebelled against God in Adam. And there's a second thing in this chapter that makes Mephibosheth's inclusion at David's table so unlikely. He's lame. In a kingdom that required the men to go to war, that required its men to fight physical battles as warriors, Mephibosheth has nothing to offer. He had nothing to win the king's favor. In fact, he was hiding from the king. The same is true of us as spiritual Mephibosheths. We are spiritually crippled. Theologians call it total inability. We have total inability to please God. Naturally, we might be able to, but not morally and spiritually. Because we are guilty and we are polluted by our sin. Every aspect of our being is affected by our sin, by the fall of Adam. We deserve nothing. And there's nothing we have to offer. But a king was enthroned. A glorious king, more glorious than David, a king of Hesed, a king of, as Titus 3 says, of goodness and loving kindness. And one day, a messenger arrived, and the Holy Spirit said to us, by the gospel word, the king is calling for you. The king is calling for you. And David's love for his natural enemies isn't what naturally happens in a sin-cursed world. But it's only a shadow of the King to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't that costly for David to include Mephibosheth at his table. But there would be an infinite cost to bring spiritual Mephibosheths into a kingdom that is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in holiness, in justice, and goodness, in truth. It would cost the king his life to bring spiritual Mephibosheths into this kingdom and at the table of the king. And that's why 2 Samuel 9 is beautiful, it's glorious, but it's only a precursor. It's a precursor of a greater kingdom. Maybe Paul was musing upon 2 Samuel 9 when he wrote these words in Romans 5, 6 to 10. For when we were still without strength, we were lame. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, perhaps for a good man one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were spiritual Mephibosheths, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, we shall be saved by His life. Indeed, God the Father forgives every believer in Jesus Christ, 1 John 2, 12, for Christ's namesake. For Christ's namesake. As David included Mephibosheth for Jonathan's namesake, God forgives us for Christ's namesake. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. Titus 3, verse 7. And this doesn't just secure our eternal future. It certainly does that. A future, I might add, where Isaiah prophesied, where the lame man shall leap like a deer. Isaiah 35, 6. It secures that future. But it also secures the present. Isn't that hopeful? It secures the present in a world where you can have global pandemics. In a world where... You can have a virus, a rogue virus, devastate every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's why we, spiritual Mephibosheths, can say, as those who've been brought to the table through the sacrificial work of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, that our only comfort in life and death, but the only comfort we need, is found in these words that we can glean from the Heidelberg Catechism. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. In other words, He's paid the debt to get us into the kingdom. And He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Amen? Let me repeat that. That without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. He's my Father not by virtue of birth. He's my Father by virtue of adoption. Not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. That is our glorious hope. And that's what this text teaches us. Isn't that remarkable providence that we'd find ourselves in this chapter, given the times in which we are living? And if you are listening and you don't have that hope, you can. Let me give you another promise. We've already seen that our king is faithful to his promises. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, that is Christ, he gives the right to become the children of God. Do you get that? To all who received him. What does that mean? That means you come on his terms. And here are the terms. The Bible says God is holy, God is just, and the wages of sin is death. But the king has come as a substitute. And as the substitute, he he comes and he lives the perfect life for sinners. 
And then he goes on the cross. And, and the wages of sin, death, is paid out on him, the Son. God raises him from the dead. And in that resurrection, he's demonstrating the debt has been paid for those who would believe. For those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. You don't have to face this world as an orphan. That's the promise. If you will trust in Christ, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for adopting us into the family. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us spiritual Mephibosheths who are spiritually crippled and can do nothing about it and inviting us to the table by your spirit through the gospel word. And Lord, I pray that we would find our encouragement that there this morning. And I pray for those who do not know you in a saving way that today you would, you would open their eyes to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's respond to the promise of God that he abides with us and we abide with him through Christ. Abide with me Fast falls the eventide The darkness deepens Lord with me Before my closing eyes, 
Shine through the gloom and point me to the sky. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's faint shadows flee. In life and death, Lord, abide with me. In life and death, Lord, abide with me. Let's conclude our time of service here today with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you. We're grateful for the means of grace that have been poured out this morning through singing the gospel, hearing your word, hearing your word declared from 2 Samuel 9. Lord, we are all broken and lame apart from Christ, and yet in Christ you save spiritually lame Mephibosheths like each of us. And so we come to you through Christ because of his accomplished work, not merely because he made salvation possible, but he secured it for his people. And Lord, what else can we do but respond in worship wherever we may happen to be this morning? And as we just sang, Lord, we want to abide with you, and you have promised to abide with us. And so wherever we are this morning, I pray that sweet sense of abiding would bring a rich grace and peace to your people. And until we meet again face to face and get to gather together to sing and shout your praises, Lord, pour out and dispense your grace in a special way upon your people. And in this difficult time, help the church to be the church. Little Christs, Christians who are known for their love of God and love of their neighbor, love of one another. Uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask these things. Boldly to you, our Father, by your Spirit and through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.